hello. Hey, John, how are you? Happy, uh, happy new year. Although I was reading your tweets and I understand it is not a good day for you. Oh, uh, well, today is a good day. Today what is, day a good is day? today. Uh, today is Thursday, January, yeah, 2nd. Thursday, January 2nd. So yeah. what's there? Yeah, today's wonderful good. so far. Nothing's really happened yet, but let's keep it going. Yeah, that's right. Just keep, just keep that feeling alive. That that's nothing's right. happened yet feeling. Yeah, keep trucking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna yeah, make some a, some tea, uh, and there's no the amount of uh, there's no clean mugs, and there's no paper uh, cups anymore. What uh, what happened? How did you lose everything? Seems like you lost used, everything. Used used it up. Hmm. Huh. Yeah. Well, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's one of those old things about like, why do I clean my room? Cause it's only going to get dirty again. I think maybe Dan, we should each have just one cup. Yeah. One and one spoon. One yeah. Cup, one you know, spoon. Th- I was just telling a friend that back in my, um, in my college time, I was in an apartment and I had, I mean, I had more, but I never used, I never got around to use them. I had one fork, knife and spoon one plate and one bowl and I would, Hmm. I would wash them and I would put them in the little strainer and the next day I would just, they were there. So I just keep using those. I think a year, like a whole year went by that way. Yeah. It's the road warrior aesthetic, right? You don't have, you can't be, can't be weighed down with a bunch of cutlery. You just have one. Why do you need one spoon? What do you need? What what are two forks going to do for you? Uh, Nothing. That's why. That's why. Use the, uh, yeah, you just need to, you just need to pare down. I guess we all need to pare down. Well, it'll happen. It'll happen when the when the streets burn, when the sky rains blood. Yeah, you'll be lucky. You'll be lucky to carry one spoon. I know. That's all I'll need. Yeah. Though then will be the spoon, the one spoon, one spoon carved out of the shin bones of your enemies. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. That's my that's my new year in a nutshell. Yeah. 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 So you say you had a yeah. lot to say though over there on Twitter. You don't even you don't even use Twitter anymore and then all of a sudden John Roderick's Twitter account is talking all about New Year's and I was the whole time I was reading it first of all I I thought it was very you know uh, moving if that's the mm-hmm. a word a word one uses and I could sympathize with a lot of what you said. Uh and then also, I was thinking maybe save it for the show, but I, I mean, is that something you would talk about? That's where we are now yeah. on the show. Yeah. 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 Uh, should I read, uh, should I read the tweets or do you just want to, you know, jump into it? It's, there's a lot that happens here. This is a lot of, this is just not, this is a tweet storm, John. A tweet storm, except these days I've figured out how to push the little plus button and make it into a thread. Although I have not found, I have not found, I, I'm always, uh, uh, especially lately sort of confused about my level, levels of engagement on Twitter. You know, people, people's responses to the things I write, I I'll write a thing and I'll go, you know, this is probably going to. You know, I should be ready to field a bunch of replies to this or responses, questions. And then, uh, you know, I get, um, I have a, I have a handful, like, like a lot of us do 50 people maybe that are sort of reliably engaging with me in a way that, 
that it's like, oh, it's, you know, that, or I feel like they're my friends even or community of people. Some of them, you know, a lot of them I never reply to. I just read their thing and go, oh, yeah, that's that is something that Dave would say or whatever. Um, but but I don't, you know, I sometimes put all the time in my feed. I see threads retweeted that have 20,000 right faves or whatever and it's just some person going down some list of things and and um you know when i go look at their their own profile and it's like well they got four thousand followers but somehow this connected with people and so it, it 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 keeps me believing that there are ways to write something and have it have it connect with people in a way but you know i almost have never in all the years there written something that went very much further than my little world. You yeah. Know? I mean, Ken Jennings puts a grocery list on there and obviously he has a lot more followers than I do, but <laughs> you know, he gets 20,000 retweets of him just the derp, derp. And I, you know, my, and my engagement just stays in the low hundreds pretty much. And, um, and yet I still sort of go on there expecting I'm going to have interesting conversations. I don't know, you know, it's it's not novel to bitch about Twitter, but but it's always been a little bit of a it's part you know part of my thirty thousand rule. Um, I just feel like there's a there's a there's always been a strange what feels to me like almost well an inexplicable cap on the amount of engagement I'm ever going to receive for something that I put out in the world, and I'm. I don't know what that's about. I think that that maybe there's, I don't know. You know, the thing that I carry with me is a feeling that there's something about me that's kind of off-putting. Like a um, physically? What, whatever. You know, that weird combination. Like, I just don't like Penn Gillette. I never liked him. Yeah. And I like Penn and Teller. And I think, you know, I, I watch, I will watch Penn and Teller do a comedy act. But, like, I don't like... I don't like Pendulata for a variety. I don't like his voice. I don't like the way he looks. I don't like the way he acts, but I don't, but somehow it doesn't, you know, kind of keep me from it. It keeps me from seeking out Penn and Teller. We would like to say thank you very much to Squarespace. You can turn your cool idea into a new website, showcase your work, blog or publish content, sell products and services of all kind. You're getting the idea here, aren't you? You can do anything. With Squarespace, they've got beautiful templates created by world-class designers so that your site's going to look awesome. And it's going to look awesome on mobile devices, too. That's the thing. It's all built in. Built-in SEO analytics that help you grow. They've got a new way to buy domains. You can choose from over 200 extensions all right there on Squarespace. And you can customize everything. If you and your friend started with the same exact template, and then the chances of that are low because there's so many to choose from. But even if you did... Spend 10 or 15 minutes with it. You're going to create your own custom site. It's going to look nothing like the other sites that are out there. It's that powerful. Trust me on this. Squarespace is the place to go to make an amazing website. And if you have any questions or trouble, they've got 24-7 award-winning customer support. So go and make it yourself and make it stand out. If you're ready to start something cool and new, any kind of website for any kind of idea or business or project, just go over to squarespace.com slash roadwork. You'll get a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code roadwork, one word, and you'll save 10% on your first purchase of a website or a domain. Once again, it's squarespace.com slash roadwork. 
And then the offer code is ROADWORK. Save 10% off your first purchase of that website or domain. So thanks very much to Squarespace for making this show possible. And, you know, if you watch Mythbusters. Yes. I think there are plenty of people that watching Mythbusters identify with one or the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so whatever it is, that some combination of like the way I look, the way I talk, the way I, the feeling I give off, it just has, um, but, but, but again, I can't possibly know that. I mean, I, I, the only way I think that is that I find myself off putting. So if I, if I were on a sh- it's one of the reasons I don't listen to the things that I make. <laughs> I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm necessarily one of my fans. But yeah, I, 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 uh, I went on, um, Twitter. I don't, you know, I don't blog, I don't micro blog, right. but I do, I do express myself through writing and I don't do it very often now, except in the form of like a angry reply. Like so often the long paragraphs that I write in life are responses to Facebook posts or reply letters to someone or, you know, it's, I'm always saying I'm, I can put together a three paragraph letter that, that, you know, burns the hair off of your eyebrows (laughs) about almost any topic, you know, just, just come at me the wrong way and I will like scorch earth. Yeah. Seriously. But I like to write funny essays. I like I like to write essays. Basically, that's my format. Um, I can sit and write a thousand word essay, and I and I enjoy it. And sometimes I sometimes the im the, the that's not impulse. It's sometimes sometimes it, 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 I need to I need to write an essay. Yeah, and um, and not having a real venue for it right now I've written a couple of these Facebook threads 15 different tweets lined up and and I like the discipline of it kind of like I used to like the discipline of early Twitter yeah because each one of those things has to be each one of those those modules has to really stand on its own you know mm-hmm. they each have to work yeah as a as a single tweet you can't just, I mean, I, I wouldn't do a thread that was where they, you know, the, where each one block kind of blorbled, mm. left you hanging. You needed to keep reading. You know, I want each one to just be like, hmm, oh, that's an, a discreet thought. And then the next one, but they all have to, they have to tell a story together. I don't know how many people listen to this program and don't go on Twitter. I, I have to assume it's a, it's, it's some amount. Um, but I don't think that you should read, you should read it. It's, it's long enough that that would be, I think dull, but, but I felt I I was sitting there on new year's day and just thinking about like, Oh, one more lame new year in the rear view mirror. And I don't know why I would do this to myself on New Year's Day, but reflecting back on New Year's past and realizing that I I cannot think of a good one from the time that I was, 
you know, a young teenager when New Year's was still kind of a thing that, like we used to on New Year's Eve have what was called the Torchlight Parade, where a group of mighty mites and young skiers would um, take the ski lift up to the top of the mountain. And, you know, you know, at our, at our ski resort, they had night skiing. So the mountain was covered with lights and you could ski, you know, until nine or 10 o'clock at night, which was some of the best, you know, some of the best times, but we would go up to the, we would go up to the top of the mountain and they would shut off all the lights and they tied, um, highway flares to the ends of our ski poles Mm-hmm. And then we would ski down in a long snaking chain of kids with these torches on our poles. And everyone down in the valley could look up and see the, see this snaking line of red fire yeah. come down, come down the mountain. And you know, those, those highway flares last 20 minutes and we would, and you know, when you were younger, you're just trying to stay in line behind all these other kids and it's, you're in, you're in the dark. So, you know, the terrain is like, it's visible, but it's, it's a little, and you're sort of in this modified snowplow. It was really challenging when you're eight years old. By the time you're 13, you're, you're, uh, a little bit more well, and you're kind of aging out of it. It was a thing just for kids to do. But after those new year's eves, Mm -hmm. As soon as, as I said in my little story, like as soon as there was any expectation that maybe I would have a significant kiss. Right. Um, after that, there was never a good one, but I, boy, I have like nine that I can point to and go, well, that was terrible. Ugh. And in, uh, and in putting those together and, in, in reviewing an adult life, and go like, wow, no, you really nine that were, that were like bad. Well, no, nine that were really terrible, like beyond bad. Uh, it just made me think like, oh, this isn't my holiday. And that, and that has to be true for others. And I think that's what motivates a lot of this. A lot of my desire to engage is just like, I wonder if this is I know this is true for others. I wonder if me talking about it would help anybody. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, it has to. It has to because that stuff helps me when I read somebody's essay about a thing and go, oh, yeah, thank you. You know, I, I was kind of I didn't even realize I was suffering in silence over here until I read the until I read somebody else reflect on it and go, yeah, that's that's nice. It's nice to. It's nice to have someone miserate. Yeah. About something that, and then allow you to commiserate with them. And, and maybe that's, maybe that's one of the defining qualities of the stuff that I've made. It, it might be the unifying principle mm. of the music I've written and things I've, and the essays I've written and the podcasts I do and all the stuff that I've done. It's all, it's all sort of in the voice of someone who has um, suffered or or uh, not succeeded, but has managed anyway, and managed not not just to like suffer through, but managed to have a figure out a way to have a good time or figure out a way to at least have learned something and 
in spite of the fact that like never really scored a touchdown in the, in the whole of, in the whole of my life, never really scored a touchdown. Mm. Uh, I, I think that's, I think that voice is really apparent in my music. There's no, there's no song where the narrator triumphs. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there's, there's no song that, that believes in love. If you listen to every one of my songs, there's, there's no indication that anyone believes in love or rather anyone has the expectation that love makes you better or wins in the end. Or, you know, I think, I, I think the songs all believe in love in the sense they believe it exists and believe it's worthy of pursuing, but, but there's no, no one ever finds it or, or feels it, um, save them. Mm-hmm. And God, there's so much music out there where love saves you. And I know the people that write the, that music, they don't believe that. You know, that's not their experience, but it's, um, it's the common thread and people love to consume that stuff. They love to listen to music where love saves them. I have no idea why. Uh, cause I don't believe it's true for them either. I mean, maybe the rare person. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what that, what, what that's about in human, why humans want that. Some, some humans, nobody picks up a novel where love triumphs in the end or, I mean, those aren't the good ones. Um, but they want that in music. You don't think people Uh, pick out a novel where love triumphs in the end? Name one. I I mean, I would have to think about it. Yeah. No, everyone always dies at the end of novels, Dan. No. Or some, or something, something. The the novels, the, the, the books, uh, my kids and I read, they always have happy endings. Uh Uh You know, love wins in those. Yeah, the Pendergrass sisters. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, or, uh, or the Berenstain Bears. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, I think, you I mean, maybe Huck Finn, things work out in the end. Tom Sawyer, things, I guess, sort of work out in the end. But the like when you, mm-hmm, when you When you move beyond, like, uh, young adult s- stuff, I'm not sure. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, super happy ending there. It's true. Love wins. It's true. That. The chief, you know. The chief gets out. He gets out. <laughs> that's right. Mm-hmm. And he keeps moving, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, we we don't see what happens, but no. you presume that he made and it love back. Love wins. That's what happens. <laughs> and he found his, he got out there. He found yeah. his, la- his lady. Yeah. That's right. But so that's, so anyway, yeah, just lying there in reflection and feeling like, I do like playing with words. I do like being um, candid or revealing, you know, I like it. I like to say things that might embarrass somebody else or say things that um, that maybe no one would, would think to say because there are just too many layers of embarrassment between whatever happened to them and, and the desire to talk about it. 
I'm somebody who's, uh, throughout most of his life, my closest friends have always been women. And that has complica- really complicated my life. You know, I don't have very, I have a lot of guy friends. I mean, just, uh, they just are all stacked up like cordwood, but I don't talk to them. It would be impossible to, for the most part, mm-hmm. because men don't know how to talk really or to go there or whatever. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to have those conversations with men that where, where it's all braggadocio and, um, so that, you know, and the sort of, I don't, I don't need any action items. I don't need anybody to tell me what I need to do. Uh, especially not the ding dongs that I know. What are they going to tell me? So all of those relationships are, and a lot of them are very close, but they're not, I don't share with them a little bit. I think that's a familiar feeling, but I've had a lot of, you know, I've had a lot of female friends, close, close, closest friends. But of course those relationships are fraught. They're fraught with expectation. And it's not just, you know, it's not just the ones that had a, that had romantic possibilities swirling around them, but also just that women are full of expectation um, in a way that men aren't. And so even ones that are purely platonic from the beginning and never had any other uh, potential, you know, there's just expectation baked in. And I, I do poorly with expectation. So there's been a lot of there are things that I wish that there were men who could talk about them. I wish I could, I wish I had a, 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 a small intimate group, some bunch of hippies that all went through a Robert Bly phase or something and banged on a drum. But the thing is, I hate those people. Mm. I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want somebody. I don't want them because the problem is a man who was in touch with his feelings is one of the worst things in life. <laughs> Because it's, they're still a man. They still want to tell you uh-huh. what to, you know, how to fix your problem. That's the thing that makes my sister so annoying is that she has the qualities of both men and women. She's very in touch with her feelings and she wants to tell you what you need to do. So, so I write, you know, I put it down and then it's almost like having talked about it with somebody because I sense that it's going to go out and, uh, you know, hopefully find who it needs to find. And that I guess is what's frustrating about the kind of lack of engagement I feel from the larger world. People read them, but maybe don't, they don't, send them further afield or maybe the stuff I write is maybe Twitter isn't the, isn't the place. But you know, I just hope that it would, that it finds like a common listener. And it's why I'm so, I'm so desperate to have people not reply with that sort of ginned up sympathy that, uh, that qualifies for engagement these days where right. people are like, sorry, sorry for your loss. And it's like, fuck you, fuck you. You are not sorry for my loss. Or if you are, that's not the appropriate response. Like your, 
you commute. What is or, the or response? If, that What would be the best response for you to hear? You know, so much of, I think what people need is just to be seen. Mm-hmm. And that's all I need. You know, the people that, I mean, the correct response is to, is to retweet it and think about it. <laughs> Not reply <laughs> at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to give me that, you know, to look down and see that I'd written something and it had even a thousand retweets instead of a hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, and then no replies. I think that would be just as good as having 20 people say, sorry for your loss. <laughs> I mean, it would be better than that. Even 20 people going like, you know, Hey man, or whatever. Thanks. But to be, just to be seen and just, if people want to reply just to say like, I see you or I said at the end of that tweet storm, like just, it, this is just meant as a fist bump. Like I'm just putting my fist out there as, and saying, if this, if you needed a fist bump, here it is. It's in the form of this little micro essay. But I, th- I think the other thing that I like about that and the thing that one of the things I'm taking into consideration when writing an essay like that is I also want it to be artful. I want it to feel like that quality of good writing where there's, there's more that's not there than, than that is there. And, you know, where I refer to whole universes and I don't bother to sit and explain them. You figure it out or you don't. And that's the thing that always made my lyrics somewhat impenetrable and maybe not suited or not targeting a widespread audience because they're full of images and vignettes that are taken from real and specific moments that, that aren't, they're not clear it's not clear what they're, what they mean. You have to spend time with them. You have to, uh, approach them through your emotions rather than through your mind or through your, you know, you have to approach them with a literary mind, which isn't to say that I think that my lyrics are literature, but just that you, you approach them with that mind of like, what's the text? What's the subtext? What's the, where is the feeling in this? What, what, what are these words here for? Mm-hmm. Not what do they mean, but like, why are they here? But that's a lot to ask people who put a song on, on the stereo. It's maybe not the venue for it even to put words like that to music and then wait for people to listen to it and, ask why they're there. You know, they're there to differentiate the verse from the chorus, not to um, communicate loss or, or worse, communicate loss that, um, that, that doesn't even have a name. But New Year's like, 
I don't go into New Year's expecting a significant kiss. But you can't stand there in the middle of New Year's surrounded by people trying to have significant kisses and not feel like no matter what you do, no matter which direction you turn, there's either no significant kiss which already sets you apart. Not not from the people who get significant kisses, but from the people who are searching. Or you are also searching. Mm-hmm. And, and I, it's partly that I don't get a lot of significant kisses in life. Uh, maybe I step in front of them too often maybe i i don't attract them i feel like i repel them why is that well it's not because i don't need them um but i i repel them i don't know i don't know why i repelled them at 13 when i needed them the most mm or at 15 or at 16, 17. Um, and I say I needed them the most then, but that's, that's not true because not getting them then I need, I continued to need them the most and kept not getting them. Mm-hmm. And it just was this, this kiss deferred until it was a kiss. There wasn't a kiss that was that big. They could make up for all the missing ones or lost ones. But I, I don't go into New Year's looking for that. I don't go into it looking for a kiss deferred. I just want to make it out the other side. But I, but it's a, it's a target, you know, it's a, it's a day that sits there like a, like a flag in a golf course. And And I just, you know, and I, so I fall prey to it. If only I could just every year in December, remember like, no, this is like your birthday used to be. I used to, I used to avoid people on my birthday. I just, I did not want that kind of, and still don't want that sort of, um, mandatory celebration. Right. Where it's like, what are we celebrating me for? I didn't do anything. And what, I made it one more time around? Like, that doesn't feel like an accomplishment or a reason. Well, I mean, people seem to really like that, John. People seem to really like to commemorate things. They like to say, well, it's a new year, so things are supposed to feel different, even though it's just the day, you know? It's just, it's, the calendar has changed a little bit. But that's what people, people are looking for reasons to party or drink or go out and have fun, or they're looking for something to mark a a date so that they can perhaps turn over a new leaf or start something new. And, you know, that's the Mm -hmm. whole concept of the, uh, that, that I don't believe in, but of saying a new year's resolution, like I've been Mm -hmm. working out in a gym for years. And so right around the end of December, January, you'll see this huge influx of new people coming into the gym. So you've got, you've got kind of your, let's say, then I go like Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings. 
So you get into the groove and you see the same people who typically are there most of the time at the same time as you. And once in a while, someone won't be there. And once in a while, someone new will show up. But usually it's the same group, you know. And come, come January, there's this huge influx of new people who will be at the gym. And it's, it's a fun game. It's kind of a fun exercise to look around and, and try and guess who's going to stick around. And I've, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good now at saying, oh, yeah, him, uh-uh, he'll be gone three weeks. This other person, three months. This person, eh, two months. Oh, that person's the, she, her over there, she's here to stay. And it's fun to mm. kind of play that game because I'll still be there in three weeks and three months and three years. Um, I have to be. Whether I want to or not, I have to be. <laughs> So, you know, you'll look at these other people and like time and time again, that's what happens. Like they're gone. They're just, they don't come back. And that's because they've started a new year's resolution. And of course they don't keep up with it, but they're trying to mark and commemorate a day. They're using that day as an excuse to try something new or to, to, to try to improve themselves in some way. And I, I commend that. I like that, but they, there's nothing to stop anyone from doing that on the January 1st, but you know, what about February 26th? That's fine too, you know, or June 8th. It, there's nothing special about the fact that the calendar is changing something. And don't get me started on the fact that, you know, when the millennium or decade actually begins, because it's, it's not 2020, but people don't like hearing that either. So, you know, I, I mean, but I'm with you. I've had more bad experiences. I, I don't like the holidays. I've never had a single good Christmas in my life. Um, or Hanukkah that right? for that matter. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I, I, I won't claim that it's been as bad as yours. Yours sounds like total shit, but um, no, I, I detest the holidays. I hate them and I want to like them. I want to have a good Christmas. I think it's possible to maybe have something like that. I'm hopeful and I try. But it's not like I've ever had a good one. And uh, I mean, you know, everything's relative, John. Like I've never been, you know, like stranded in the wilderness on Christmas surviving by eating, you know, bark off of a tree. That would be worse. I'm talking emotionally and I'm talking relative and like all oh, this is a first world kind of a problem. But I've never felt like good on a Christmas. I think one year yeah. when I was maybe four years old. I, I, and, and remember we were a Jewish household. So like we only did a tree like once and that one year that they did it, they had, uh, or this could have, you know, it could have been my birthday, John, I was three or four years old, but there was a bike downstairs waiting for me once when I came downstairs, that was a good day, but I couldn't tell you whether it was Christmas or a first day of Hanukkah or my birthday. But other than that, yeah, it's just been crappy. Yeah, I, I I think I've said it before, but I need to reiterate that I don't feel like if there's if there's a list of phrases that I really reject, I reject the mentality. Mm. It, it it is the phrase first world problem. I don't think that that is a I think that that is a pernicious mm. uh, men mentality that's done to that's you know that's affluent white people trying to shame other affluent white people for some reason because it makes them feel better or just and not, not even white people just affluent people 
um, not acknowledge, just trying to hurt each other. Um, there's no such thing in particular. I mean, if you have a complaint, if something hurt you, it hurt you. And there's no, there's nothing gained by trying to diminish it and saying that your problems aren't real because you have a full plate. That's just a, that's a dirty way to think. And people use it all the time as part of this new culture of, of, I think maybe generously mm-hmm. trying to acknowledge their good fortune, but you don't do that by taking away your ability to, to describe your suffering because everyone suffers. And the idea that wealthy people or people, not even wealthy people, people that just have enough to eat aren't entitled to suffer is some kind of gross way of thinking that, that, that more and more as it sort of washes over our culture and it becomes a way of that people talk this constant reflexive, dishonest apology for privilege. It, um, it has robbed us of something and replaced it with something ugly. Hmm. So your problems are real, Dan, and everyone listening, your problems are real. Don't think that by, don't think that there's anything like there was a, but there was a brief moment in time, not very long ago when it was useful for each of us individually to reflect on how there are things about our lives that maybe we didn't understand were, um, were things that other people didn't share. And, and that was in particular tied to race and class in a way that, you know, just the ability to walk down the street for some people is easier, less fraught, um, because of things that you didn't have any say in, but the problem wasn't that you had those things which are native to you and you didn't choose that. The problem was that you didn't realize when thinking about others that they didn't share the same world you did, right? That was the benefit of that moment of saying like, are you woke? Have you reflected on your privilege? Because it meant that when I walk into a jewelry store and they buzz me in without thinking, and then the person following me because of the color of their skin has a heart, doesn't get buzzed in, but gets scrutinized mm-hmm. that that was an additional challenge they faced that maybe I hadn't considered when I made comments to the effect of, well, why don't people just deal with their problems the same with the same ease that I do, right? That was the, there was a moment, but those were the benefit of that was a personal reflection If I thought about that, if I read somebody talk about it and I considered it for the first time and went, oh, wow, it never occurred to me that that ends up being a form of wealth, right? I mean, that was W.E. Du Bois who introduced that idea that like it is money, it's worth money to just walk around with white skin. Um, 
But having personally reflected on it, which is the only value, to, to constantly reiterate it, it's all, the only purpose of it is either to virtue signal to other people who, who it, it's only meaningful to them if they've also reflected on it. And if they've also reflected on it, it doesn't matter whether you have or not. You know, like sharing the fact that you're members of that club, particularly over and over, is just a form of, you know, it's just a shibboleth at that point. We would like to say thank you very much to Health IQ. Health IQ, they're all about rewarding people who take good care of themselves and getting them a better price on life insurance. That's it. That's all they care about. That's all they're here to do. Because people, if you take good care of yourself, maybe you deserve that perk, right? Are you eating a, a really good diet? Do you go out on the you know weekends and work really hard? Do you do CrossFit? Do you jog? Do you get good sleep? I mean, all of these things count toward your overall picture of health. And so the healthier you are and the more seriously you take it, well, wouldn't it make sense that you get a better deal on your life insurance? That's what they are trying to do. And so you can go to the Health IQ website and you, you have to qualify for this rate. I mean, you've got to tell them the kind of stuff that you do. So to see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash roadwork. Healthiq.com slash roadwork. You'll take their proprietary health IQ quiz, and depending on your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared to other providers. <clears throat> One more time, that's healthiq.com slash roadwork. Well, that lets them know that we sent you. And uh, you start the process with the health IQ quiz. There's no commitment. You'll even learn about more potential opportunities that you can be rewarded for because you're committed to living healthy so again, one more time, last time, healthiq.com slash roadwork. Thanks very much to them for making this show possible. Or it's meant to, you know, it's, it's, it's personally undermining because you take away everything good that happens to you by, by couching it in these terms of like, well, I didn't, you know, I probably didn't do anything to either earn this or, um, you know, there, there's nothing special about it, but I'm still going to, I still have to talk about it because it's the only things I know. It's the stuff that happens in my life. Or it's meant to, it's meant as a kind of one-upsmanship, a kind of bullying, a kind of universe creation that, that again, that's an awareness now that at least in our circles exists and if, and for it to work, you need to be thinking about it. But having had the scales fall from your eyes, hmm. it becomes then a, it either becomes part of your daily understanding of the world or it doesn't depending on who you are and how reflective you are. But hearing other people talk, you know, hearing other people like slappy with it, doesn't inspire you to think about it more. It doesn't make you more reflective. It just becomes a, a shibboleth or a, or a mantra and a, and a negative minded one. But what it definitely doesn't do is continue to help other people. You know, it does not, the people who are not 
susceptible to that way of thinking mm-hmm. are not made more susceptible by repetition and particularly not the way it's used, which is in a, which is in this form of like rebuke. That doesn't make anybody reflect on their own privilege more. It just becomes a, an inside handshake and it's never used in the comp, you know, or in the world of people who are, who actually are affected by it. You know what I mean? Like Matt Howie apologizing for his privilege to Merlin Mann builds nothing. Um, it's just a circle jerk. So from my standpoint, like you are suffering, I am suffering. Those are valid things to talk about. They don't need to be apologized for. They don't need to be contextualized. You don't need to, you know, it's, it's basically a version of eat all your peas because there are children starving in China or whatever it was that our mothers used to say to us in the seventies about trying to get us to think about what, you know, it wasn't to think about famine. It was to (laughs) shame you into eating your peas. Right. It was a false, um, uh, it's a, a kind of false liberalism, a false progressivism that doesn't, uh, just doesn't make the world better. So I didn't, I didn't mean that as a, as a, as coming down on you. I just, that kind of. Yeah. I'm like super offended <sighs> right now, John. I don't even know what to say. Well, I, I know, but you know, you know what I mean? Like that, just that kind of the, the, the reflex of that in the language now and I agree, I agree with you. I agree with you, but I think it's also, it's also a way for people to sort of frame. It's, it's, it's a way for people to try to maybe acknowledge the fact it's like saying, you know what? It's really not so bad. It's not so bad. It's not the end of the world. I don't need to feel horrible about this because relatively speaking, like I'm sitting here at a desk talking into a microphone. I'm going to make some money and have fun doing this with you. And like, how bad is life really? And I think it's, that's kind of what people are trying to convey when they, when they say that, though I'm not defending myself for saying it or defending anyone for saying it. I think that's kind of the sentiment is like, it's almost like saying things could be worse. And that's, that was always my sort of family mantra in that, we always tried to find the humor in things. We always tried to look at a situation and come away from it, trying to laugh about it, trying to laugh about it, not later, but during, you know, not, oh, do you remember that thing that happened two years ago? You know, oh, oh God, can you believe it? And then having a laugh about it. It's almost like in the moment we better laugh or else we're going to be really upset about it. And I feel like there's an aspect of that in it, in it too, maybe. There is. And, and, but I feel like that's a way more effective way to do it, you know, to say like, well, here I am and I'm complaining about, uh, this trip on the subway, but you know what? My feet could be on fire. That's right. Yeah. Uh, is very different than saying, uh, I, here I am waiting for the subway, but I could be a disadvantaged person of a different color who is just trying to get into a jewelry store. Mm-hmm. And that's an, that is a, uh, that's condescending, you know, uh, to people who really are having that problem, yeah. you know, yeah. that really, that is equivalent to saying like, 
uh, there are kids in China starving to death, but you know, what am I, what am I doing about it? You know, I'm not doing anything. I'm just, I'm just trying to, I'm using it as a rhetorical, in a way, like a very dark rhetorical whimsy. Um, and it's a, um, it's, it's in a way it's the opposite of what uh, its intention is because it's objectifying and, and using like other people's real trauma to make yours, to make yourself feel better. Um, so I, so I do say all the time, like, well, you know, I could be on a, I could be on an out planet. Um, and the, and the, whatever, some explosion caused one of my, one of the walls of my shelter to blow out. And now I have some tarp there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like that would suck. Uh, but I, but yeah, the, the, um, the way that that has turned into, uh, into this, this sort of corrupted version of it. I, I, uh, it just raises my hackles and it does it more and more because I have conversations where the, where those conversations are, I have conversations with friends where the, the conversation is punctuated with that kind of talk over and over until, until communication is, suffers from it. Um, where it's just like the, because those signals aren't being sent to me, they're not meaningful in terms of the conversation. They're meant, to, they're meant to guard against, uh, uh, to guard against rebuke from someone else, because the because there's this uh, this fear in the culture now that if you say like, oh, I stubbed my toe, that there's some random out there who's going to say, first world problem, and so you need to get ahead of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think and, that's part of it too you know, and, and guard yourself against that kind of, um, that kind of rebuke from somebody you don't know or care about some, some dummy out there who's trying to make themselves feel better, make themselves seem smart Mm. is what it is. The impulse, you know, make themselves feel more woke because they're out there standing up in a question and answer period during a book reading and saying, um, yes, I just wondered if you would reflect on your privilege a little bit. It's like, fuck you. <laughs> uh, you know, like reflecting on your privilege is a personal thing. It's not a public performance. You go reflect on your privilege. It's not some, it's not a dance, you know, it's only useful if you sit and do it yourself. And if you bring it to your encounters with other people so that you don't stand there and say, well, people should just lift themselves up by their bootstraps and not be aware that there's a, that there are steeper climbs for others. It, that's its only utility to make you be less of an asshole, not to share you, you know, not to show your friends. So, I really, really try to, and, and, and partly it is like, I'm made to deny that I have any right to be sad, not because others have it worse, but because I don't deserve nice things. You know, that's a, that's a a challenge that I carry 
through my life where I say to myself, the feelings that you're having are your just desserts or they are accurate. They, they represent an accurate understanding of how bad things are. And so to have like depression um, and have it be like unresolvable because the voice in your head tells you that things are awful and they're, and, and the, and simultaneously whatever other voice in your head might be there trying to relieve that feeling mm. and say, but you're a good person and you try hard and you know, that that voice is also in league and saying, well, you know, that may feel bad to hear, but it's true. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's been something that at least in the last handful of years, I've recognized and said, this can't be the, this can't be the dialogue in my head. I, it can't, my, the various voices cannot be in a conspiracy to, um, to assure me that my worst feelings are sensible. So, you know, I don't need the additional help of also being told <laughs> that I don't have a right to those feelings in the first place, you know, <laughs> right, right. Um, because I don't want it. I don't want those feelings. Anyway, the, a, a, a friend that walks with me all the time is the friend of the possibility that I would sit down and, and write and keep writing. And I don't, I don't think of that friend as the same thing as not having finished college or having finished college and having it be uh, nothing or not having finished an album, not having finished a book. I think of the, the moment that I sit down and start writing and keep writing as a, as a kind of friend, as a potential as maybe a place that I could find a home. But I don't do it because I'm kind of afraid of what what's going to come out. Um, you know, I don't want to have, I don't want to have bad things come out. I don't want to write things that I write and write and write and then look at it and go, none of that is real or none of it, um, none of it helps. That's just, uh, fertilizer. And, and partly that's because I wrote a lot between the ages of 17 and 30, 17 and 27, I guess. Mm -hmm. I wrote and wrote and wrote. It was my, uh, all during the, the time that I was drinking and doing drugs, like what I did when I wasn't drunk and high was sit and write and filled notebooks. And it was 
all awful, like bad writing. It was, it was writing. I was practicing. I was, I was honing it. And I think the, the one good thing that came out of it was that I gradually out of just pure frustration and pure self recrimination learned to write in my own voice. You know, I learned to write in my speaking voice. And what makes a lot of that writing bad is that it's not in my voice. It's me trying on other voices and, you know, trying to figure out how I wrote and realizing that I just needed to write like I think, which is how I speak, was a, was a process, a long process. Right. Of writing something that just was BS and looking at it and going, what if I just said this the way that I think? And, you know, one of the, one of the um, hardest parts of reflecting on my city council run was that I didn't understand that world and I was trying to conform to it. I wanted to try and write and think in a way that was suitable for the role. And I remember a friend of mine who had previously run for city council um, and, and had made it through the primary. And uh, this is a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, he now runs a bookstore in Mexico City. Um, and I and I consulted him when I first started running. His name's Grant Cogswell, mm-hmm. and he said, "Here's my one piece of advice: Don't wear a suit. Wear a rock T-shirt. You know, get out there and say your thing and be yourself, and don't try to be something right, you're right, not." Right, right, because all the pictures that you I saw of you from that time. Were you know you were in a a, a lovely uh, suit and tie. Well, the thing is, I don't wear rock T-shirts, and so Grant was saying that, but he was saying that about himself. You know, like Grant knows me, and he knows that I wear button-down shirts and that I like to wear ties. And when he said that, you know, just wear rock T-shirts, I kind of it it kind of made me blow off his advice. Because I was like, I'm not the rock and roll candidate who's going to go to these meetings in a D.O. T-shirt. You know, I care about the city and I care about stuff. And Grant is a Grant ran kind of as a poet. And that's not that different than what I did. I ran as a musician, but I didn't. But I tried to join that world. And I don't speak the language of that world. And I am not right, right. a member of that world. And so it didn't work. And what I failed to do was actually stand up in front of the city and say, we need to put in zip lines as a form, you know, gondolas as a form of public transit because our city isn't built for bike commuting and even light rail in the way that other cities are. Big cities like like Atlanta that mm-hmm. are built on a, that are built on a giant flat plain or cities like Portland that are built on a small flat plain 
it's just easier for normal people to do that. And there are bike commuters in Seattle, but they, you know, they're a hardy group. You can't just say to some, some 50 year old who's never exercised before, like just hop on your bike and ride 15 miles to work. That's not a solution for the city as a whole. It's a solution for people that are like, Hey, it never occurred to me. You know, I'm fit. I like to ride my bike. Why not just ride it to work? But that's not, it's, you can't say like, this is how we're going to solve the city's problems because it's, you know, it's often 45 degrees and raining here too. Yeah. And so, you know, one of my principles was like, we have a city of seven Hills. We're like fucking ancient Rome and we should have gondolas, but I never said it publicly because it sounded ridiculous and it would have been ridiculous in the context of a city council race, but it would have been where I actually was coming from. And that race now would, I'd be able to point to it and say, here were my platforms. And as, and 20 years from now, when we do build gondolas, I will have been on record. (laughs) Um, But I got into that race and there were all these severe faced, super earnest, like ugly progressives screaming at each other about minutia in what they considered to be, uh, the, the universal right to have housing under certain, uh, under certain circumstances and conditions that, that didn't necessarily, you know, that, that aren't real, that didn't apply. You can't just scream rent control into the air <laughs> without a plan to have rent control be a part of the economy of your, of your city and region. And that doesn't happen in a vacuum. You don't just implement it. You have to, you have to consider it. And, and so I'm standing in a room where people are yelling at each other about a thing that I think is a fantasy, more of a fantasy than a gondola. (laughs) And I, you know, I straightened my tie and, and tried to weigh in and it wasn't, it wasn't my voice because I didn't believe it. But I did believe that this was what the, that this was the, it was another mistake. It was like when I went to work at a, at a stock brokerage and walked in the door and was like, well, this is real. It's realer than what I do and think, right? This is the real world. And I'm living in a, I'm living in a, in a dream world or a fantasy world, but I'm not any more than they are. It's just that that's the world that people uh, uh, agree, you know, the people that I don't respect agree is real or agree is the only world. That's the thing. Mm. That's the thing that infuriates me or not infuriates me, but just makes me feel, um, that makes me incredulous is that, that their fantasy world the reason it is in power, the reason that it is the world is that the people that advocate for it don't think there's another. And those of us that are like, well, there are a few worlds. How, I mean, we're just bad at communicating that. And, right. and, and you can, and the problem is you can never really stand on, uh, on a, on a pedestal and shout if you're like, if you're somebody that goes, well, there's all, I mean, 
gondolas would be cool, but there are other other ideas we should consider too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not the way you get anything built. It's certainly not the way you convince people there's only one way to think. <laughs> 